This is one of those rare... Oh, whoops, I should probably hit play. There we go. So this episode was put together by Miss Fontana, who is excellent as always, except, well... I don't want to praise her too much. I do think this episode has several substantial flaws with it. But she does a good job with what she's got. Originally, this was actually supposed to be a sequel. I know, right? In fact, if you pay attention, all the pieces are in place. They finished Naked Time, and they're like, where do you want to just, just chart a course to Earth? Just get us out of here. Okay, okay. And, hey, we've time warped back in time. Huh. And then... Hey, we're back in Earth. You could see how the two were supposed to gel neatly. In fact, this functionally still is a sequel to Naked Time. It's just there's no direct reference still remaining because they added in the whole thing about the black hole. <clears throat> Excuse me, the black star. <laughs> Babylon 5 reference. In order to try and t smooth over that. But otherwise, this is still effectively a soft sequel. Uh, this is what I have to call an indirect sequel. The events may happen immediately following it, but the there's no real connection, right? Uh, this is something I've actually talked about a lot, and forgive me for talking about it here. Like in the Zelda series. Um, Zelda The Wind Waker, Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, is a direct sequel to Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. But Majora's Mask, which happens right after Ocarina and includes the same link is an indirect sequel, because even though it's the same characters, it's just another story that happens afterwards. There's no direct connection. Make sense? So, this then forms that, an indirect sequel. It's the next story in the bit, with the same characters and the, and the events immediately following, but there's no real direct connection other than the fact that time travel happened to happen. We'll be covering uh, several indirect sequels over on Enterprise as well, actually, since that's going to be a thing... Uh, once we get to season four, three, late three, three into four, there, there's some stuff going on there. Anyways, th what's actually funny, by the way, this episode was originally submitted as an idea by Justman himself. And I can absolutely understand why. Trust a producer to come up with a cost-saving idea. Because between the repeat, or not the repeat, uh, the stock footage and using older sets, you know, pre-existing sets, this episode was actually cheaper than it otherwise would be. In fact, this was a substantially cheap episode, despite how many, how much moving around there was, and the fact that they had two, well, three, three guest stars with lines. One of which didn't have a name, which is why I had to correct myself there, but still. Fact remains. So I'm kind of with it. I'm kind of with the idea. I also have to mention, this is actually funny by the way, they go back to 1969. Nice little timing. That would be two years after this episode came out. Anyways, this episode probably has the, I'd say the second best cold open so far. This is good. Because the episode of Star Trek starts on a U.S. Air Force base. And it's like, huh, okay. And they're just wandering around like, do -do 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 -do, and we've detected something, and there's the Enterprise in the sky. Cut to, cut to the opening crawl. That's good. That's great, actually. Because if you're showing up new, you're like, oh, okay, this is this is some kind of weird sci-fi modern-day thing. And if you're a fan of the franchise and have been following this whole time up, the whole time you're thinking, oh, God, why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we back on Earth? Why is this modern times? Oh, no! You know, you, you can see how it's, it's, it's a good hook. It gets in there really quickly and efficiently. So we find out the ship is out of power. This is actually smart. A lot of the, I'd say the first half of the script, is really smart and really, really well written. 
I don't want to give too much praise again to Miss Fontana, but the fact is that there's a lot of excellent stuff here. It's after that where it starts to fall apart for me, but let me let me rewind a second here. So we they talk about the Black Star, which caused this issue, and the first thing we find out is that the ship is wrecked by that. Okay, that makes sense. Because of what they just went through in Naked Time, I mean, with the Black Star, the ship is low on power, it's kind of strained, the engines took some damage. That all makes sense. One of the key and critical things that you must always do when writing fiction is figuring out a way to challenge your protagonists. And the more tools in the arsenal of your protagonists, the more difficult it is to do. Now... If you've watched my Star Trek stuff before, you know I've talked about this topic at length across Voyager, across TNG, across DS9, because they've given them super tech, right? When you have replicators and transporters and scanning equipment and FTL drives and shields and all of the incredible tools at their disposal, it is difficult to challenge the crew. Possible. But it does take creativity. It does take really thinking out the circumstances. To use a bad analogy, it's like being a GM of a D&D campaign. And you look at your party, and they've got a level 17 cleric, and a level 15 fighter, and a level 13 wizard. I don't know why their levels are all over the place. Let's just say they're all level 15. Okay, let's just flatten that. Or even level 10. So we got a level 10 cleric, wizard, fighter, and uh, let's say a rogue. That's a death ball, especially if they know what they're doing. So how do you challenge them? And so you as the GM think very carefully about your options, and you can you probably, you know, pool resources. I, I know when I used to GM more regularly, I used to constantly consult with other GMs in order to try and be like, hey, what do you think I should do about this? And just get a, get a rotation of ideas going around. And you try and figure out how to challenge this exact party. Same thing when writing a Star Trek episode. How do we challenge the crew? So, the fact that they have gone through this damage, they're, they're drained at this point in time, leads to the entire episode happening. Because if they had just been drained and gone back and hadn't been spotted, the episode would have even happened. Even within the... See, this is how this is logical. This makes sense. This is why I say this is good script writing. Because even with the limitations and the damage they have just taken, it only takes them a relatively short period of time, hours or maybe a day or two, in order to recover the ship to the point where they can get up get some kind of you know scanning deflector thing going on, and get back into what is effectively stealth mode. Cool. So, nevertheless, the fact that they are there in that injured state while someone is paying attention and happens to notice is why the ball gets rolling to begin with. So they're not... My, the reason I'm bringing this up is one of the things that Star Trek tends to do very wrong is it pretends that the crew has way less resources than they actually do. How many times have you watched an episode of Star Trek? Any of, the, any of them. And you're sitting there thinking, well, why don't you just do such and such? And this isn't even nitpicking. It's just there's certain aspects of the episode, of, of the tech or the resources or the knowledge that they have that they are not using. And that's what's causing the dilemma of the week. And it's just like, okay, guys, you can... Come on, right? <laughs> So the fact that they don't nerf the Enterprise too far, but just enough for just a brief enough period so that the dilemma can happen, that's good. I'm with that. Also, we have the Corbomite music. That was nice. So I do have to comment, by the way, how hysterical it is that it is this easy to time travel. 
I mean, later on in this very series, they're going to time travel without even explaining how. They're just, yeah, we, we time traveled because we're on a fact-finding mission in the past. I'm sure Daniels is having fun trying to keep track of all this. <clears throat> or the, the Scully and Mulder duo over in Deep Space Nine. You know the, you know the pair. Uh, so, we find out uh, that there's the aircraft coming up. Now, the Enterprise is damaged. They can't get away in time. So they're looking at that like, okay, what do we do? Well, we're already in injured, and we have no repair facilities because we're in the past. They figure that out very quickly. That ship, that, that fighter, might have nukes. Actually, fun fact, this was a real thing at this point in history. Although it was pretty damned rare, it was nevertheless a possibility that such a fighter class could, in fact, have a nuclear warhead on board. Pretty damned unlikely. But they don't know that. Kirk doesn't know that. Spock doesn't know that. So, okay, we have to deal with that because we can't afford to take a nuke to the hull right now. Especially when our ship is already so damaged. So, okay. We have to do something about a tractor beam. Is this the first time we've actually used the tractor beam? I think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like this might be... I didn't write it down. It just occurred to me just now because tractor beams are so old hat. But I think this might actually be the first tractor beam. At least... By the Enterprise, because we have the tractor beam that uh, the Metrons used in Arena. Hmm. Anyways, so let's use the tractor beam. But sir, the fighter's too fragile, it's falling apart. Oh, okay, well now that we've already screwed up once and we're about to kill a man, obviously we don't want to kill a man, we are not the bad guys, I, s I swear. So okay, beam him up. Now, all of this makes a degree of sense and all of this lines up. This then leads to the weird part of the episode. Well, no, this this is just... They beam up Christopher, and it's like, hi, and Kirk is just... I, I don't know how to explain how weird he is in the way he acts around Captain Christopher. He's just like, hey, what's up? Don't worry, I'm a friend, it's cool. I know we've just literally teleported you, but don't stress it, it's okay. We've under we, We're actually friendlies. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Ha let's go get a beer. You want to watch the game? I'm obviously being facetious, but this is the overall approach that Kirk is using. Maybe he's doing it to disarm the guy, you know, emotionally. Maybe he's doing it because he has no idea what he's doing. I mean, he did just destroy the poor guy's fighter, so you know that's a thing. I don't know what the actual logic is here or the lack thereof. Either way, he then brings him up. Now, this is actually kind of cute. Uh, the episode as they're walking along, the guy's like. <gasps> A woman, and there's this just this really brief jazz riff. Really? Episode? What's really weird is that made me go, wait, he's in the Air Force, isn't he? So I looked it up. The WAF has been around, depending on how you define it, at least since 1948. This is set in 1969. Why is it weird that an Air Force pilot sees a woman on a ship? I'm just curious. Then again, he does mention the Navy, and I didn't actually look up the Navy, so I don't know if women were in the Navy yet. I, I don't know. Uh, at least in the U.S. <clears throat> Whatever. So, um... This... Uh, Kirk's just being kind of weird. And the whole time he's just being like, hey, like he's just got a guest on board. But this then leads to... Uh, so, he explains that this is an accident, and Captain Christopher has a line which actually makes me laugh. Oh, I guess you guys have a lot of accidents. 
it's meant completely in universe, but if you think about it, given the fact that the Roswell incident has already happened prior to this, you know, with Quark and Nog and Rom. <clears throat> Anyways. I, I, one of these days I need to sit down and track all the points in time that have Starfleet personnel in the past. Because from, like, the 40s to the, the aughts, there's got to be a, at least a dozen instances of people wandering around that period of time. Just fun to think about. <sighs> Anyways, this then leads to a scene which actually bothered me until I realized why it's there. Spock explains time travel to Kirk. And I'm like, duh? Kirk actually acts like this is all news to him, though. And it slowly occurred to me why they're doing this, because time travel was being explained to the audience on the off chance that they... Because time travel in science fiction was not exactly a brand new thing. I mean, the time machine drastically outpaces this thing. But, uh... Actually, I'm not sure. When did the time machine come? Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Doing research live. But that is why that scene exists. It's so Spock can explain time travel to the people. I don't know if that was a mandate by the executives, because, you know, we all know that people who watch television are stupid. That's what most executive producers tend to think. It could also be the whole idea of trying to explain it just in case they're not on board. You know, just getting the exposition across here. It's really bare-bones stuff. Um, that's one of the reasons why I look at that like, huh. That's, this is so duh. Why are you explaining this? 1895. I was right. I was right. 1895 is when the time machine came out. I know there's actually been time travel before that, but I tend to track time travel back to Wells and that particular tale, personally. The first movie adaptation was pretty good, too. And then there was the second one, the one with Isaacs. That one was... Not that great, but it's okay, because he was probably okay in Discovery, which I still haven't seen, which brings us neatly back to Star Trek. Beautiful segue. So, Spock explains how time travel works. I'm not even going to waste your time on that. And here's the catch. They can't send Christopher back because he's, he's going to pollute the timeline. There's the synopsis. Okay, cool. Nevertheless, they are also stuck. They, they can't get back to their time. Okay, cool. I mean, that makes sense. After all, they didn't exactly deliberately do this. By the way, this is a good time to mention this episode, which was written by Justman and Dor uh, Miss Fontana, was actually directed by Michael O'Herlihy, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. You're probably thinking, why are you even bringing this up? Because this is the only episode he directed. Gotta keep that trend going! Anyways. <clears throat> so... This... Then, Captain Christopher gets free and tries to, to, to break into the, the transporter room. Because apparently there's only one? They mentioned get Agard and the transporter room. And now that I think about it, I'm not sure they actually have more than one in TOS. Or at least, hasn't been established up till this point. Which just makes me wonder, why do you have only one of these things? Like, I understand having one set, but why in lore would you explain it to having one, this absolutely critical piece of equipment, only having one of it on the ship? Then again, this is Starfleet, so I suppose I shouldn't expect too much. By the way, we find out there's 12 Constitution classes of this era. I only point that out because that's amazingly stupid. Think about how few 12 ships is. 12 Constitution classes, I know they're the heavy cruisers of the time, but I'm pretty sure that couldn't properly patrol a sector. Never mind however much we are to presume they're supposed to be at, at the, the writer's perception at this point in time. I mean, obviously, in-universe, Federation is this dinky little spot on the map, but 
as I've mentioned before, the writers at this point were assuming that they had gone across the whole galaxy, that they could go, that the whole galaxy was 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 something that they were they had access to and could warp around at and blah blah blah. So twelve twelve of these suckers for a galaxy. I think we might have a little bit of Doctor Who syndrome going on there, which is in summary a lack of understanding of scale. But I am getting off track. So we got the one transporter room, and they go down to to do like ah, and they stop him. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I must report. He has this weird thing. I must report. But I must, I, I just want to see my family so much. Okay. This is a good time to bring up something that I don't understand about this episode. It's played like it's a comedy. Now, I want to stress this, because this makes absolutely no sense to me. I don't mind there being moments of levity. I enjoy Empire Strikes Back. But... This is a very serious, properly constructed dilemma, which I'm going to discuss in just a moment here. And yet, there's these weird moments of... They beam aboard the chief, who has no name, the guard with the gun, and he's just... And what was previously a deadly serious flaw in the plan suddenly turns into... And there's there's a lot of little sections of that throughout the whole thing that just... I don't know... It's it's awkward and kind of cringy to me. And I know that's horrible saying that since I am both awkward and cringy, as you can ask Laura Loaded about. But the, the fact of the matter is, I don't understand this. Maybe it was intended to be The Empire Strikes Back, you know, the, the, the moments of levity, and it just failed? What do you guys think? But let's talk about the dilemma, because this is an excellent dilemma, really. They're both stuck. Well, actually, let's just rewind this. So, we have escalation. The ship needs to be repaired. And they accidentally get a person, but they must not return that person. But then they find out that that person was taking records. So those records have to be taken taken care of. They have to get down, sneak in, and destroy the records. Then they find out they have to return the person that they accidentally took. Then they go down, are caught, accidentally grab a second person, go get deal with the records, and then they have to act. And then Kirk gets caught, which now leads our eighth and uh, effectively final dilemma to be dealt with, right? This is beautiful escalation. This is, again, to continue my D&D parallel, this is exactly what I would expect my players to do. Constantly screwing up and then improving their way to try and get, get forward while I'm just sitting here going, why didn't you just... Uh, okay, okay. So... <laughs> it's just, it's just, I, I can nitpick. There's a scene where they don't lock the door in order to try and stay safe. There's a scene where they decide to roam around rather than just beaming up and dealing with the tapes that they... So they go to the dark room. I'm assuming they go there to check the the reels that they picked up. Later on, after Sulu beams up, he gives it to Spock, who checks the reels on the ship. The only reason for them to check the reels in the dark room is so Kirk can get caught and the episode can get elongated. Let me go ahead and jump in. I think this episode has a massive amount of filler, like 15 to 20 minutes of filler, and it's the entire last chunk of the episode. Because basically the the moment at which they get down, successfully deal with the guard with the gun, successfully get the tapes, they've won. The dilemma has been beaten as of that moment in time. There's no reason for them to have any other issues, so that's why they're stupid and go to the dark room, and then Kirk gets caught. Kirk then is entirely too flippant around the colonel. Uh, Fellini, I think, was the character's name. 
And we just have this weird scene which goes on way too long about that. And this then leads to another really strange thing. Before I mention this, by the way, I do want to say, you'll notice that, once again, Kirk is sacrificing himself to allow the mission and his crew to get going. You, you caught that, right? This is, this is just a thing. He's too self-sacrificing. He goes out, slams the door behind him, so that Sulu, and then does a very loud thing. He immediately smashes into the nearby crate so that Sulu will hear it and beam the hell out of there. So that that's that's I'm kind of with that, but the whole thing was unnecessary. Then Kirk gets captured. Okay. Then uh, actually, hang on. I do want to give praise for actually having an honest to goodness fist fight. Let's be honest. This is probably the real reason this was in the episode. They needed to get their action quoted in. They needed to have the fist fight, and it's good. It's actually a properly choreographed, fun fist fight. I wish they had less edits, but I understand the limitations of the time. And maybe I'm just biased because I've seen way worse on Star Trek, even more modern stuff. So I'm with it. It's a good fight. It's a good fight. Then, I, then the episode really just dives off in terms of quality. So... McCoy says, well, because Kirk doesn't have his comm unit, we can't detect where he is, and we can't beam him up to the ship, even though we've de demonstrated several times, including in the previous episode right before this one, that we can scan someone and beam them up. We can even beam up everything within an area, if you'll remember. That's also a thing that's already been done. I'm pointing this out because I'm not using any future knowledge or continuity of other things, just what has been established prior to now, which is both of those things. So, the very idea that Kirk is stuck is stupid. Two reasons, stupid. Not two, because the first reason is because he's not. They have demonstrated the ability to do this. Bad dilemma construction. Remember what I mentioned earlier about the, the crew pretending that they don't have access to tools that they do in order to make the dilemma? Here's the fun part. This is completely unnecessarily narratively, too, because they have a good dilemma here. They can't just beam him up in the middle of them. That's going to cause a panic and cause people to freak out and all sorts of things. They need him to slip out quietly. So the dilemma should be more about trying to find the specific moment that would be best for Kirk to get out without having him down there too long. They need a moment where he's alone, and yet they can't wait too long until the interrogators start showing up, right? So that, that's a perfectly acceptable dilemma, but no. They, we can't find him for some reason. So they have to beam down more people in order to find him. This is when Christopher decides to threaten Spock to be beamed down. Why? Remember, as of this moment in time, it's already been established, Christopher has to go back. We've also already solved the Christopher dilemma. Remember? As long as they get rid of the tapes, they've already said this, as long as they get rid of the tapes, he just has a story. And it'll be just another random UFO sighting, Right? They've already established that. He has to report in. It's dumb. But he has to report in. They have no evidence. And he wants to get back to his family. So there you go. Just beam down with him. Leave him behind. Bring up Kirk. The episode's over. But no, instead they beam down. And Christopher has to strong arm his way down. Then, keep in mind they've still got that MP going just up in the transporter room who's having chicken soup because moments of levity... Actually, I kind of liked that one in the interest of total honesty. It's probably the only levity moment that got a grin out of me. So we have Quake, and we've got him down there. And Christopher goes down and he rescues him, and then he pulls a gun on him. I'm staying behind. I've got to report in. This is my duty. And then Spock knocks him out, and they beam him back up to the ship. Why? Then they reveal their big plan. 
It's worth noting that as of this moment in the episode, the, the episode is solved. All the dilemmas are defeated. So the, the party has won, right? Now I'm pointing that out because this is before they go back. But I found myself just kind of wrapping up and, and getting ready to record. And then looking up in confusion because I was completely ready to go. In uniform, had this. I, you know, I had, had the audio setup ready to go. I had the visual setup ready to go. I had the, the background at the right timestamp in order to, to keep the looping thing I keep doing. I was totally ready. And then the episode was, why is this still going? And I checked in. It still had like five minutes left from when I checked in. I was like, what? Turns out, this is, this is why I really mentioned the filler thing. The moment at which they are ready to go, you know, they've gotten Christopher, they've gotten the tapes, they've been backed up to the ship, they have the plan, they're going to warp around the sun. There are ten minutes left in the episode after that point. That may not sound like a long time, but that is a fifth of the entire episode, which is just filler of them going back. And it takes forever, too. <sighs> so they do. They go back, and their big plan is to is to warp around the sun... And in so doing, they will beam him down onto the aircraft at the millisecond that they beamed him up. And the Enterprise will vanish from the past because two things can't exist at the same time, which introduces all kinds of other problems. Let's not get into that. And then they beam the MP down in the future when he was, wasn't there because they weren't there yet. <sighs> it's utterly unnecessary to do this whole song and dance. And it just introduces all sorts of weird niggles. I thought about just ripping apart the way they approach time travel here. Star Trek has had issues with time travel, but every now and again it does time travel really well. This is not one of those examples. Whatever. So, they do it the end. Now let me to add one final note here. As much as I praise both Miss Fontana and Mr. Justman, the fact is I do think this was a brilliant move. I do. I've, I've spoken against the Parallel Earths thing, and I will continue to do so as it keeps showing up. Because we're not done with it yet. But the needs of making a TV show do necessitate focusing on the reality. You have to deal with budget, you have to deal with the office politics, and you have to deal with the practicality. What can you do? What are you allowed to do? What do you have the resources to do? Right? And I like... As weird as it sounds, I like that. It's a creative challenge in its own way. It can be very frustrating. I mean, hell, you know how much I literally spent five hours today completely redoing my entire setup. You may notice a slightly different lighting setup. Just because what I want to do is not something I can do. So I'm trying to improve it to get to that point. It's like running into a wall. It's just frustrating. So I get that. But it can be a unique and interesting creative challenge. At least if you're doing it voluntarily. Which leads me to this idea. What they do here, using time travel to go back into the past, is in its own way brilliant. Because it gets all of the benefits of the Parallel Earths thing when it comes to production and budget. And it nevertheless can, contains stories and, and ideas that you can still use in a proper manner that add to the overall flow and work of it, right? Now, I don't think they should hit the time travel button too often. In fact, I think they only really use this twice after this. Don't quote me on that. I know these at once. In an episode we'll get to when we get there. But I do, I, I think this was a creative way of dealing with this. And I hope we see more of this kind of creative problem solving in the future. But for now, I'm good. Well, I'm, I'm terrible, actually. But I'm done. I'll see you next time.